Good morning. If you have a Bible with you, go with me to the book of Genesis. We're going to be in chapter 3 today. As always, if you don't have a Bible but you would like to follow along with us, there are Bibles that are in the chair racks in front of you. You can grab one of those. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the Bible, uh, Genesis is the very first book. And we will be in chapter 3 today, so within a few page turns, you should be there. Before we dive into what uh, we want to talk about this morning in Genesis chapter 3, I do want to take just a few moments to uh, thank someone in particular. I want to thank uh, Linda Roddy. Linda Roddy is not here with us in this service today. She was in our first service, but Linda has been a a faithful teacher in our upper elementary Sunday school for uh, many years now. Many of uh, you have, been, uh, have kids who have been taught by her, and um, we're very thankful for her ministry. Uh, she has also been serving uh, as, as, uh, as a help with the women's, uh, women's ministry leadership. Uh, she and Tracy Farthing are heading that up. She's also serving as uh, a deacon, and so she has not, uh, but does not have that much time to devote to all three of those things, and so um, she is going to be stepping away from her Sunday school teaching responsibilities so she can do uh, some of those other things. I was having a conversation with uh, my son about this, and uh, he was, uh, uh, he's in her class and was, uh, was sad that she was leaving, uh, but one of the things that he, he said in trying to recognize that what she was doing was important is he said she would be doing something uh, more important. And as we talked about it, I assured him that there is nothing more important uh, that she could do than teach um, our kids uh, God's Word. And so she is going to be doing something else of equal importance, um, and both of those responsibilities are important, but she is uh, well-loved by her students. Uh, lots of people who have been in her classes now or in the future have written cards to her. I gave that big stack of cards to her in the first service. If you uh, did not get a chance to write a card to her and you want to, uh, you can still do that. You can do it whenever you feel like it. Uh, you can pull a piece of notebook paper out and write a card on that. It doesn't matter. Uh, but if you'd like to express your thanks to her, we also gave her a gift card uh, that she can use to uh, purchase, we were thinking, um, a tree for their yard, uh, maybe a fruit tree, because we believe that um, her teaching is going to bear fruit for many years and, in fact, will uh, bear fruit even beyond her time of life. And so we're thankful for that. But we told her it's a gift card, so you can do whatever you want with it. Yeah. I always hate it when somebody gives you a gift card and you have to, here, you use this to buy a thing you don't want. Um, so... She can buy whatever she wants with it, but that was, what, that was our symbolic thing that we thought would remind her uh, of, of her ministry in that way. Okay, I want to start this morning by reading something to you. Alice was beginning to get very tired of sitting by her sister on the bank and of having nothing to do. Once or twice, she had peeped into the book her sister was reading. But it had no pictures or conversations in it. And what is the use of a book, thought Alice, without pictures or conversations? You know what book that comes from. It's the opening line of Alice in Wonderland. And that question that Alice asks at the beginning of that book when she's bored to death with 
the book without pictures in it uh, that her, her sister has, that question that she asks leads her on an adventure in which she sees a, a rabbit with a pocket watch pass by, and she makes the decision to follow that rabbit down the rabbit hole into um, an amazing adventure. Questions can be powerful. Questions have the ability to alter the course of our lives. You may recall a question that changed your life, something that someday you asked yourself, and as you started exploring the answer to that question, it drastically altered the course of your life. Maybe there is somebody who was in your life at one time who asked you a question that was such a powerful question that it it caused you to rethink everything. It changed the the course or the direction of your life. Powerful questions have led to amazing discoveries. Questions have the power to alter the course of our lives. And today, I want us to see two questions in the text that we're going to be looking at in Genesis 3 that had a radical impact on human history. Two questions, the after effects you feel right now. The first question, interestingly enough, was posed to the first woman by a snake, interestingly enough. And that question was this, did God actually say? Did God actually say? This question, as I've said, has had an immeasurable impact on the course of human history, and this question was directed straight at God's truthfulness. It was directed at God's Word. And it sets off a chain of events that altered the course of human history. And what I'd like to do is I'd just like to work through the progression in this passage that this question sparked. This question, did God actually say... So here's the first part of the progression. The progression begins with doubting God's Word. And we can see that in verse 1. If you're there in Genesis chapter 3, let's read verse 1 together. The Word of God says this in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. One of the things that's interesting about our our text that we're looking at today is that the serpent is introduced but without any sort of introduction. Have you ever had the experience of talking with some of our more senior saints and when we're talking with our senior saints, they talk about all these people from their lives that you have no idea what their names are and they never explain They'll they'll just say, you know, back in 45, old Bill Jackson was like, and you're, wait, who's Bill Jackson? Well, this is kind of what Moses does 
to us here, he simply introduces this serpent that can speak. And the identity of the snake is not mentioned anywhere in Genesis. But the last book of the Bible, Revelation, identifies this snake, this serpent with Satan in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9 when it calls him that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So Satan, in the form of a certain serpent, asks Eve a question. Did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? We can understand immediately that this is not an innocent question. This is not a question intended to gain clarity on the situation of what they are and or not allowed to eat. The serpent's intent here is, as it were, to put a pebble in Eve's shoe, if, in fact, Eve had been wearing a shoe, but she wasn't. But his intent is to put a pebble in her shoe. In essence, he's, he's kind of sidling up to her and saying, the word on the street is that God has forbidden you to eat. Look at this beautiful garden. The word on the streets, you're not allowed to touch any of this stuff. Is that true? And for the very first time, Eve is experiencing a perspective that is not aligned with her creator's perspective. You and I know that as a, as a matter of fact and experience all the time. We experience in our daily lives all sorts of perspectives that are not in line with God's perspectives. In fact, in our own hearts and minds, we wrestle with our perspective that is not aligned with our Creator's perspective. But this is the very first time that a human being is encountering an alternate perspective. The serpent is casting doubt on God's Word. And that leads to the second item in this progression, from doubting God's Word to twisting God's Word. Look with me, if you will, at verses 2 and 3. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Eve starts well enough. She provides a corrective to what the serpent has just claimed and tells them that they are, in fact, allowed to eat of every tree in the entirety of the garden except the one which has already been mentioned, the tree in the center of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But in providing that corrective, she says a few things that are just a little bit off. And I don't want to make too much of some of these things because, because this information would have been given directly to Adam and perhaps indirectly to her, we don't know. But Alan Ross, in his commentary on Genesis, points out three alterations in her response to the serpent. 
The first is that she seems to minimize God's provision by changing you may freely eat, which is what God said, to simply you may eat. Secondly, and this is the one that's the most obvious and most significant, she adds to the prohibition when God sa- she says that God told, prohibited them both from eating of the tree and from the very act of touching it. And in the third place, she seems to weaken the penalty by changing God's words of you shall surely die to lest you die. And then you add to, the, to that fact that, that she starts using in conversation with the serpent, she uses the serpent's name for God. So, so the, the Hebrew word Elohim for God can be applied specifically to the God of the Bible, the one true God, or it can be applied to other gods. So we've got capital G and G, God or gods. Elohim wasn't just applied in the Bible to the one true God. But there is a title that's applied exclusively to the one true God. It's the one that's used all the way through chapter 2, and that is the term Yahweh, the term Jehovah, you might have heard it some, sometimes. All throughout chapter 2, he is described as Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God. But Satan uses the more generic term for God, and Eve uses that term for God as well. At the very least, we are unsettled as readers as we see this dialogue start to spin out because there are, there are things that are raising questions in our minds. And there's, this, there's one obvious thing here where she's said that you're not allowed to, to eat it or even touch the tree. And we ought to be asking, okay, how is God's word being twisted here? Something's off. Well, the progression moves forward to a third stage. First, we have... The doubting of God's word. Then in the second place, we have the twisting of God's word. And in the third place, we see the contradicting of God's word. Look at verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So we're seeing a progression here, and whereas the serpent began by just asking a few questions, now the serpent is moving in for the kill, so to speak, flat out contradicting God's word. And it's as if he is coming up to her and saying, Eve, I didn't want to be the one to have to say this, okay? And I, I, I really, it pains me to do this, but God's been lying to you. And not only does Satan tell Eve that God has been lying to her, but Satan denies the consequences that God has promised if they are to be disobedient. Satan says, you're not going to die. In fact, quite the opposite will occur. You think you've been living now? Wait till you forge your own path. Wait till you create your own destiny. Wait till you go your own way. That's living. Satan's pitch to her is that God has been withholding good from her. 
That's a pitch you and I still get. Whenever we are faced with clear choices of whether we are going to obey God's Word or not, one of the things that often lodges into our heads is that, is that if God has prohibited something from us, if He is keeping some of something from us, if He has told us that there is something we ought not do, there is good to be had, there is happiness to be had, there is joy, there is fulfillment, there is something that we could have that God won't give us. Satan is telling Eve that God's dirty little secret is that rather than being like him, there's actually a path to become him. Now, it's interesting that one of the things that he tells her is that your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. She already is like God. The Bible has already told us in the first two chapters in numerous places that, that humanity was created to reflect God. We were made in the likeness and image of God, which means every single one of us and every single person on, human earth, uh, on planet earth has, has value because we are made in God's image. But what Satan is telling her is that There's something in you to be unlocked, like the video game. Get a little further, you're going to be able to unlock new capabilities. You didn't hear it from me, but God's holding you back from being all that you could be. This is the nature of temptation at its core. For us to be unsatisfied with being like God and to attempt in some ways to be God, in the sense that we are the masters of our own fate and destinies, to believe that true freedom comes from deciding for ourselves what will make us happy and what will make us fulfilled and what will bring us joy and will make, what will make us satisfied. Satan is contradicting God's word and telling Eve that God does not have her best interest and heart and that he is actually afraid of her. This contradiction of God's word now and all of its boldness moves us into the third phase, the, third, or the fourth aspect of this progression, which is disobeying God's word. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6, the Bible says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. This is, more than, uh, this is about more than simply eating a piece of forbidden fruit. It's not about the fruit. It's about who's God, and who gets to make the decisions, and what happiness and fulfillment and joy and wisdom looks like. 
And Eve makes a decision in this moment to abandon God's design because she sees that the tree and what it offers is good for food. It's delightful to the eyes. It's desirable for what it's offered. And as this desire wells up within her, she takes a bite and then she shares it with her husband who does the same. I don't know if some of you have church background, some of you have been raised in church, so you were in Sunday school or classes, and so you learned Bible stories growing up. Some of you did not have that privilege, and so the Bible stories are more fresh and more new to you. But for those of us who have been around for a little while, there was a way uh, that we have versions of these Bible stories that come from our Sunday school days in our minds. And we used a thing called flannel graph a long time ago, which you've never heard of some of you, but flannel graph was this stuff that would stick to a board. And so you had all these biblical characters and all these things, and, and your, your teacher could stick the flannel graph on the board, and you could work out the seam. But of course, it was up to your imagination. So we imagine stuff. And I don't know about you, but one of the things that the ways that I always imagined this is that Adam is somebody, somewhere else. He's out in the garden. He's doing his thing. It's a great day in the garden because every day was a great day in the garden. He's having a super day at work because everything's a super day at work because work is awesome. The the trees, they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're right on schedule. Eden is being expanded. It's being cultivated. It looks beautiful. And I always imagined Adam coming home, whistling with the day's paper under his arm and saying, Eve, how are you? And she's like, well, we've got something to talk about. Okay. And when he finds out what Eve has done, he's like, well, I guess, you know, I guess we're dead already. I might as well eat too and see what it tastes like. That's kind of the version of the story that I had in my mind. And of course, we certainly don't have all the details of what was going on here, but there's no reason for us to believe that Adam was not sitting there passively present the entire time. And look at what verse 6 says, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. What's probably far more likely is that Adam is present the whole time doing nothing. He has been tasked by his creator to keep this garden, to cultivate it, to tend it. I told you several weeks ago that this is language that's used elsewhere in the Old Testament of guarding the temple. So Adam's got a responsibility to guard the temple from that which is unclean, that which is sinful, and when the opportunity comes to guard it, he doesn't do anything. And then says, and said says, yes, pass it down. He fails in his responsibility to guard this sacred space. The consequences then of their disobedience are immediate, far-reaching. 
we're going to talk about some of the consequences that God speaks over them in judgment next week, Lord willing, when we tackle the remainder of the chapter. But I want to talk a little bit about some of the consequences that they just immediately experience. And I can summarize these consequences with one simple word. It only takes one word to describe the consequences that they immediately experience from their disobedience. Do you want to know what that word is? That one word is simply this, hiding. Hiding. The serpent, as it turns out, was right in some respects. Their eyes were opened. The serpent was right in some respects. They did gain a new knowledge. But it destroyed them. And we can see the effects of that destruction in their hiding in two ways in our text that I want to highlight to you. First, we see them hiding from each other. Look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Of course, this is strange for us to think about. But what the Bible is trying to describe to us in ways that I think all of us know deep down is that there is an innocence that's been lost. The truth of the matter is they see each other in different ways now. They are now ashamed of themselves. They are ashamed of who they have become. They are ashamed of their bodies. And so they take fig leaves and sew them together in a futile attempt to hide from each other. They have existed in a perfectly harmonious relationship with each other for the entirety of their existence. They have never known shame because there has never been anything to be ashamed of. They have never experienced a moment of disharmony. They have never had a misunderstanding Adam has never made a look that Eve has said, well, what does that mean? Never. They have up to this point been perfectly confident in who God has made them to be and who they are in relationship to each other. But with a bite, all of that is broken. There's something there now. It wasn't there before. Now when you think about it, every one of our relationships is stained by conflict. 
every one of our relationships is muddied by shame. Are you able to imagine what it would be like to live one day of human existence and not ever for one moment during that day feel shame? Shame is so much a part of our existence Shame is so much woven into the fabric of our experience that we have developed all sorts of strategies for dealing with that shame. Even the people, even the relationships that are closest to you, you still feel some measure of shame at some times with that person. And you and I still seek to hide parts of ourselves from those people because our relationships have been stained by shame and conflict. We are now ashamed of ourselves, ashamed of our bodies, ashamed of our actions. There is not a day that goes by that you do not feel some measure of relational friction with someone. So we hide from each other because we are ashamed. But hiding shows up in another way. Not only do we hide from each other, but in the second place, we hide from God. If you're there in Genesis 3, look at verse 8. The Bible says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, don't blame me. You're the one that created her. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And she said, don't look at me. Serpent. Serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now, we rolled right past it. But in this section of Scripture that we just read together is one of the most heartbreaking sentences in all of Scripture. And I want to highlight for you once again, because I want you to feel it, one of the most heartbreaking verses in all of Scripture. Verse 8, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Not only have they enjoyed a perfect, unbroken relationship with each other, but they have enjoyed a a perfect, unbroken fellowship with their Creator. But after their disobedience, a fault line has opened up between them that they all know is there. Now, we just 
We, we think about this as a matter of fact. This is just part of our experience. One of the songs that we sing together is how great the chasm that lay between us, how high the mountain that we could not climb. And we think of that in rather unremarkable terms because of course there is a chasm between us and of course there is a mountain that we cannot climb. But it wasn't supposed to be that way. There is a fissure that has opened up now between humanity and their Creator. They have been hiding from each other because they are ashamed, and now they are hiding from God because they are afraid. After all, He said, lest you surely die. They probably have no understanding of what exactly it they need to be afraid of or what it even means to surely die. But they know that something has fundamentally changed within them. Something is broken. And when God is questioning about it, Adam blames Eve, Eve blames the serpent. We're talking about the power of questions. This is a question that you and I are still living with the answer. Did God actually say? That is a history-changing question. A life-altering question question. We can hardly imagine a question that would have more impact, and yet there is a second question in this passage of Scripture that is even more powerful than that one. And that second question is a question that God asks. It is a question that is composed of just three simple words, and the question is this, where are you? Where are you? God is not asking this question because he is having trouble locating Adam and Eve. God is not wondering what was happening while he was gone. I go away for five minutes. God knows exactly what has happened. He knows exactly what they are doing. And so when God asks the question, where are you? This is their first sign that God is going to pursue sinners in spite of their sin. He's reaching out to them and asking them to be open with Him, to tell Him exactly what they have done. What has just happened is literally earth-shattering. Yet the question that God asks is even greater still. When God says, where are you? He is opening a door to grace. We're not going to have an Ananias and Sapphira situation here. A.W. Tozer wrote a book many years ago that many 
Christian people have read, and I'm sure there are people here who have read this book. It's called The Pursuit of God. And in this book called The Pursuit of God, one of the things that Tozer teaches and encourages is that, is that, is, is that Christ's disciples, followers of Jesus, should pursue relationship with God. The very first chapter is called, in fact, Following Hard After God. And this is fine and good. We should follow God with all of our hearts. But let me be clear with us. Before there is any pursuit of God on your part, it starts with God's pursuit of you. Our sin causes us still hide from God. When God reaches out and asks that simple question, where are you? Adam and Eve are hiding behind trees about as effectively as I can stand behind this music stand. Maybe he won't see. Well, he does see. And you look ridiculous. Our sin causes us to hide from God. The Bible makes that clear in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, when it says, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. But the amazing truth of the gospel And the amazing story that unfolds in Scripture is that while no one seeks God, God is actually seeking us. And he makes that clear on numerous occasions, one of which is Romans chapter 10 and verse 20, where the Apostle Paul quotes the Old Testament book of Isaiah and says, Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, speaking of God, I have been found by those who did not seek me. And I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Now that's a twist on hide and seek. I have been found by those who did not seek me. Or you could take it from the mouth of Jesus himself who says in Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, for the Son of Man came to seek, to save that which was lost. So when Jesus says these words, his, the mission of the Son of Man is to come and to seek and to save what is lost, this is not Jesus announcing something new and totally different in God's plan. What Jesus is doing is echoing the mission of God found in the very third chapter of the Bible when God comes to, to the garden to seek sinners and ask the question, Where are you? Christians, Christian people here this morning, we still hide from God, don't we? Because of our sin. I mean, if I'm to ask ask you a question right now, maybe it would be good for you to consider this. Where is Satan speaking to you? Not directly, 
But how is the echo of Satan's voice in your mind, in your heart, causing you to doubt, twist, contradict, disobey God's Word? God may be bringing something to your heart and mind right now where you can say, I'm right here. Now, let me be clear. The Bible is not against us asking questions. The Bible encourages thinking people who ask questions. But the foundation of our questions can never be, am I God or is He? Where are you at in that? Where do you hear the echo of the serpent's voice in your own mind? And then, why are you hiding? All of us find ourselves in situations where we are naked and ashamed before Him, and so we run away from Him rather than to Him. Once again, God comes to us trying to hide behind a little tree and says, this is ridiculous. You're not hiding. But how much would it change your life if you heard God's question, where are you? And you stepped out and you said, here I am. Here I am. This is what I am. This is what I've done. This is the way that I've sinned. And how much would it change your life to believe if you were to answer that question, here I am, God would respond to you with mercy and grace. Because that is exactly what He does. He comes to sinners who have made a ridiculous mess of everything. He says, you can still be accepted with me. Some of us have been reading a book together called Gentle and Lowly, and in that book, the author quotes John Bunyan, not the guy with the big ox, that's Paul Bunyan. John Bunyan is the guy with Pilgrim's Progress, not the big blue ox. He quotes John Bunyan who writes a list of the excuses that surface in our minds to keep us hiding from God. Let me ask you if any of these resonate with you. But I am a great sinner, say you, Bunyan writes. But I am an old sinner, say you. But I am a hard-hearted sinner, say you. But I am a backsliding sinner, say you. But I have sinned against mercy, say you. But I have no good thing to bring with me, say you. Do any of those excuses 
resonate? Do any of those things seem to justify your hiding? Well, I've done this sin a lot. I I can't go back now and confess it. It'll seem disingenuous. Does it resonate with you when when you feel like you were at a crossroads, you knew the right to do, you knew what was wrong, and you said, you know what, I know that I'm choosing wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway because this is the thing that's going to make me happy in this moment. Well, I can hardly go to God now if I've just done that. I've been sinning for a long time. I should be more sanctified. I should be more like Christ than I am now. I've been, I've been walking with Jesus for many years, and I still find myself in the same old patterns. I need to keep hiding. I don't have anything to bring with me. What I would like to do, I will stop playing this game of hide-and-seek with God when I feel like I've gotten myself a little bit more together, when I've been able to say, I know I did this, but look at all of this. And Jesus says, all of those things are excuses. All of those things keep you from hiding. When I say, where are you? You step out and you come knowing that you will receive mercy and grace. I've been like this from the very beginning. Maybe you're here this morning and you aren't a Christian. We've been talking about sin a lot today. (laughs) We've been reading psalms about it. We've been singing songs about it. We've been praying about it. Now he's going on and on about it. But maybe you're feeling the weight of that sin. Maybe you're feeling overwhelmed by the weight your sin. Maybe you feel naked and afraid and ashamed before God. Maybe you have spent your whole life hiding. This morning, will you hear the word of the Lord? Where are you? And can you receive the gospel promises of assurance that accompany that question? Because when God asks you this morning, where are you? This question is not intended to seek and destroy. No, Jesus came to seek and to save. Even if you are a hard-hearted sinner. Even if your whole life has been characterized by sin. Even if you can't imagine how you would let go of that sin. And so if you are lost this morning, can I encourage you? Stop playing hide and seek with God. Come out, come out wherever you are. You're not hiding anyway. Step into the light of God's grace this morning. Accept the fact that though you have been lost, you can be found. That though you have sinned, you can be forgiven. Turn in faith and repentance to Christ. And if you do that, you can sing that old hymn, Amazing Grace, once was lost, but now I'm found. Let's pray. Lord, we have discussed difficult things this morning, tragic things this morning, discouraging things. 
we want to thank you that though we could be lost in our sins, we have a God who seeks. Where are you? And I pray that you'd help us as Christian people to put away our foolish excuses, to stop hiding, to step into the light, because we are fully assured of your pardon. And Father, if there is some person with us this morning and they feel burdened and overwhelmed by the weight of their sin, may they find forgiveness in Christ this moment. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.